Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. Before we begin this week, I just wanted to remind you that I will be completing my move over to Spotify by October 8th, so the show will be exclusively available on Spotify for free. The annual kids episode will be there as well as a Spotify exclusive Halloween themed guided nightmare. Speaking of guided nightmares, you may have noticed something extra in your feed this week. I have begun making all of the guided nightmares that were previously behind a paywall free here on the main channel. I really hope many of you can benefit from a gentle yet unsettling journey where you star in your own horror adventure. If you listen to this week's, it has an intro where I sort of explain what a guided nightmare is, so check it out. One more announcement before we begin this week's episode, and that's that a while back I narrated a beautifully horrifying tale for the podcast, A Darker Tale. It's finally available for all of you to listen, so I'll link it in the show notes or you can search for A Darker Tale on your podcast app. The story is called Witches of the Black Forest. Now, let's begin, shall we? Last week's episode was very ethereal and dreamy and beautiful and mysterious. So, let me just throw down the emergency brake and slide in sideways to something completely opposite of that. Warning, this week's episode is all true stories, they're all very gruesome stories. They're full of gore and tragedy, and if you need something less so then that is no problem. I will see you next week. For those of you who wish to stay, my friends, this week we are talking about cannibalism. This episode is dedicated to my friend Karen, who was letting me drone on at her about the cannibalism in the Jamestown colony and said, you should do an episode about cannibalism. And I said, you know what, you beautiful genius, you're right. And then I told her more details about Jamestown and she said, I'm not opening your voice notes anymore. So, here we are. I've got to tell someone about cannibalism, so please let me in. Let me sit on your couch and ramble at you about cannibals because my friends have clearly tired of me. When talking cannibalism, it's really hard to figure out where to begin. It's so much more common, even today, than a lot of people realize. I think we should start at sea. There are many tales of sailors resorting to cannibalism in desperate times, but none is more famous than the story of the whaling ship, the Essex. The Essex set sail from Nantucket, August 12th, 1819, on what was supposed to be a two and a half year long whaling trip. From the get-go, the Essex had some really rotten luck. Only two days after leaving Nantucket, it was hit by a squall and it almost sank. The top gallant sail, which is a very important one I looked up, (laughs) and two whale boats were destroyed. If you don't know much about whaling, at the time they didn't spear the whales from the ship itself. They would actually take out a few smaller boats and kind of flank the whale in those, then spear it. Lady Luck continued to ignore the crew when, in September of the next year, one sailor, a man named Henry DeWitt, up and deserted the rest of them in Ecuador. Just left. And I looked it up, and apparently that was pretty common with whaling um, journeys. They would just have sailors kind of be like, this sucks, bye. 
Um, can't really blame them. <laughs> Whaling crews need a very specific number of men in order to work properly. Like each boat get, needs five or six men in the boat, plus you need two or three on the ship, and it's very complicated. I'm not going to explain how whaling in the 1800s worked to you. Don't worry. But that's just to give you kind of an idea of why it was so such a big deal that one person left. This was not good news. On top of that, the crew quickly realized that the area's whale population had been overfished and there were no whales left for them. And I know whales aren't fish. That was just a term about, you know, overfishing. Please don't at me. In early October, they decided to stop for supplies and to fix a very bad leak in the ship. See the luck? She just keeps running away um, off the coast of Hood Island in the Galapagos. While there, if the whaling carnage hasn't been bad enough, they captured around 360 Galapagos tortoises to keep for food. They didn't feed or give water to the tortoises either, as they were under some very stupid idea that tortoises could survive for months without food or water. They could not. The tortoises slowly starved as they were one by one butchered to feed the sailors. Another fun fact before we move on to the big show, the ship's helmsman, Thomas Chapel, thought it would be a hilarious prank, and I'm not kidding, he thought it was a funny prank, to set fire to Charles Island where the crew was hunting. This was in the peak of dry season, and they burned, he burned, not they, he burned the entire island to the ground wiping out the Floriana Mockingbird and the Floriana Island Tortoise from the island. They're near extinction. The mocking I'm not sure what their status is these days, but I know that they didn't completely wipe them out. They had existed on other islands, but they still don't exist on that island. Eyewitnesses say the island remained blackened and scorched for years to come. The captain of the Essex, George Pollard Jr., who was only 29 at the beginning of the ship's journey, by the way, was furious, and according to several sources I read, he swore vengeance on whoever set the fire. Chapel only admitted way later that it was he who had set the blaze. In November of 1820, first mate Owen Chase was repairing a whaling boat that had been damaged by a whale in a recent attempt to capture one, when he spotted it. A sperm whale, almost the same size as the ship. This whale was not having any of their nonsense and began to ram the ship. In his own words, Chase said, I turned around and saw him about 100 rods, 500 meters or 550 yards, directly ahead of us coming down with twice his ordinary speed of around 24 knots, and it appeared with tenfold fury and vengeance in his aspect. The surf flew in all directions about him with a continual violent thrashing of his tail, his head about half out of the water, and in that way he came upon us and again struck the ship. He said that the whale hit the ship with such an appalling and tremendous jar as nearly threw us all on our faces. I could distinctly see him smite his jaws together as if distracted with rage and fury. 
As the crew, who was still aboard the ship and hadn't gone out in a whaling boat, attempted to lower the leftover boats and fill them with as many supplies as they could grab, the other whaling boats began to return. Again, in Chase's own words. The captain's boat was the first that reached us. He stopped about a boat's length off, but had no power to utter a single syllable. He was so completely overpowered with the spectacle before him. He was, in a short time, however, enabled to address the inquiry to me. My God, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? I answered, We have been stove by a whale. The men were around 3,700 kilometers off the west coast of South America. They were hesitant to abandon the now sinking ship, as they knew it could mean certain death. The Essex sank slowly, and they spent two days attempting to save whatever supplies they could. They even attempted to create makeshift sails for the whaleboats. As the Essex slipped below the surface, the twenty crewmen set out in three different whaleboats, one led by Captain Pollard, one by first mate Owen Chase, and one by second mate Matthew Joy. They spent a month bailing water out of rickety, ill-repaired boats. Their food was soaked in seawater, which only made them thirstier, so they resorted to drinking their own urine. They attempted to recapture some of the Galapagos tortoises, but they were too big to bring aboard the small boats. Finally, on December 20th, they landed on an uninhabited island. Here, on Henderson Island, they found a freshwater spring and proceeded to spend the next two or three weeks eating through all of the island's natural resources. Birds, eggs, crabs, peppergrass, you name it, they ate it. They realized they'd starve if they stayed on the island, so all but three men decided to get back into their little boats and try to find civilization again. What happened to the men who stayed behind, you ask? A year after the Essex sank, they were rescued and brought to Australia. The men who decided to leave had attempted to stockpile some food from the island, but it was gone quickly. That's when the deaths began. Second mate Joy was the first to go. He had allegedly already been sickly before they even left Nantucket initially, so Obed Hendricks then took over as leader of the boat. Soon after that, Chase's boat separated from the other two, and a crew member on his boat named Richard Peterson also died. Both men were sewn up and buried at sea. In Pollard's boat, they ran out of food on January 21st. Within eight days, three men were dead and their bodies were kept for food. On February 8th, off in Chase's boat, who you remember had become separated, a sailor named Isaac Cole also died. This time, the men did not sew him in his clothes and dump him into the ocean, as they had with Richard Peterson. Chase wrote that they separated limbs from his body and cut all the flesh from the bones, after which we opened the body, took out the heart, then closed it again, sewed it up as decently as we could, and committed it to the sea. Obed Hendrick's boat, carrying two other men, soon became separated. They were never seen again. A whaleboat with three skeletons was found later washed up on the shore of Ducey Island. It was, of course, old-timey days, so there was never an official identification of the men, but it's pretty much believed to be them. 
Of course, all of this has already been bleak and horrible, but it's about to get bleaker and more horrifying. On February 6, 1821, a sailor in Pollard's boat named Charles Ramsdell had an idea. It was a nautical tradition to draw lots in order to sacrifice oneself for the greater good. The rest of the men agreed, and so lots were drawn. A teenage boy with the appropriately grim name of Owen Coffin, who happened to also be Pollard's first cousin, was the unlucky drawer of the short straw. Pollard, heartbroken at fate's cruelty, said to him, My lad, my lad, if you don't like your lot, I'll shoot the first man that touches you. The boy declined his cousin's offer and said, I like it as well as any other. Charles Ramsdell then shot the boy in the head. Pollard would later say, He was soon dispatched, and nothing of him left. On February 18th, Chase's boat was rescued by the English ship called the Indian. Pollard's boat was 300 miles away. They were starving once again. The only two left were Pollard himself and Charles Ramsdell, the one who had shot young Owen Coffin. The men took the bones of the deceased crew members and smashed them open to suck the marrow out, in a grisly attempt to save themselves. Finally, a week after Chase's boat had already been rescued, Pollard and Ramsdell were spotted by an American ship called the Dauphine. Many years later, a young writer by the name of Herman Melville met an old man by the name of George Pollard Jr., now retired from the sea and living on Nantucket as a night watchman. Pollard regaled Melville with his story of the Essex. Melville then turned it into a little novel you may have heard of called Moby Dick. Let's move on now to Correggio, Italy in the year 1939. Meet Leonardo Cianciulli, also known as the soap maker of Correggio. Leonardo had a tragic beginning in life. Born in 1893 in Montella Avellino, she often said that her own mother had cursed her. She had two suicide attempts as a young girl, and at one point in her early life, she visited a fortune teller who told her that she would marry and have children, but that all of her children would die young, something that would haunt her for the rest of her life. At the age of 24, and against her parents' will, she married Raphael Pansardi, Leonardo sometimes claimed that this was the moment her mother placed her curse, as her parents had wanted her to marry a different man. Ten years later, living in her husband's hometown, Leonardo was imprisoned for fraud. She was released soon after, and she and her husband moved to Lacedonia, where the curse seemed to follow. Their home was turned to rubble during the Urpinia earthquake of 1930, so they moved again. Now on to Correggio Reggio Emilia. There, Leonardo opened a shop. I tried finding out what kind of shop, but I couldn't, so if anyone knows, let me know. I don't know why, but that's a detail I'm eager to know. Despite finding a nice life in Correggio, it was reported that she was well-liked in her neighborhood, misfortune once again found Leonardo. Although she became pregnant 17 times in her life, the fortune teller's warnings 
rang somewhat true, unfortunately, as three of those were miscarriages and ten of her children died very young. Her four surviving children were her pride and joy, and she became obsessively protective of them. Leonardo once again sought the guidance of a spiritualist who told her, In your right hand, I see prison. In your left, a criminal asylum. Nine years after moving to Correggio, her eldest son, Giuseppe, joined the Italian army as World War II loomed over Europe. Plagued by the idea of her mother's curse and both warnings from different fortune tellers, somehow Leonardo decided that there was only one way to protect her precious Giuseppe. Human sacrifice. Leonardo's first victim was 73-year-old Faustina Setti, Faustina had never married and came to Leonardo, a self-proclaimed matchmaker, to help her find a husband. Leonardo claimed to have found Faustina a husband in Croatia. She even wrote letters to the elderly woman pretending to be this man. It came the day that Faustina was to join her suitor in his home country, and she visited Leonardo to say goodbye and to thank her. Leonardo insisted they celebrate. I read different accounts saying she gave Faustina either coffee or wine. Either way, the beverage was drugged. When Faustina succumbed to the sleeping potion, Leonardo struck her on the head with an axe. She cut the body into nine parts and collected the blood in a basin. Here is what happened next, in Leonardo's own words. I waited until it had coagulated, dried it in the oven, ground it and mixed it with flour sugar, chocolate, milk, and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine, kneading all of the ingredients together. I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them. I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of caustic soda, which I had bought to make soap, and stirred the mixture until the pieces dissolved in a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied in a nearby septic tank. It was discovered that Leonardo also made Faustina's blood into chocolates that she shared with the neighborhood children. Leonardo also allegedly managed to get her hands on Faustina's life savings of 30,000 lira, or about 5,000 modern-day U.S. dollars. 55-year-old schoolteacher Francesca Suavi was victim number two. Leonardo, always being the most helpful of neighbors, told Francesca that she found her a job at a girls' school in Piacenza in northern Italy. The details were similar to that of the murder of Faustina, in that Leonardo faked a correspondence between her and the girls' school. This time, however, Leonardo had the idea to convince Francesca to write postcards to her friends and family to tell them her plans to move so that no one would notice she was missing for a long while. On September 5th, 1940, like Faustina, she came to Leonardo's to celebrate her new adventure and was given a glass of drugged wine. While she slept, she was struck with an axe. Her body was also drained of blood and made into cakes and chocolates, the rest of her being dumped into a septic tank. She also made away with 3,000 lira of Francesca's. Leonardo still thought she needed one more human sacrifice to appease the gods or God or whoever she decided had requested these human sacrifices. So 
she set her sights on her good friend, Virginia Cachopo. Virginia was a 53-year-old former opera singer. In her youth, she had even sung soprano at La Scala, a famous theater in Milan. The scam stayed the same, and Leonardo promised Virginia that she had found her a secretarial job with a famous impresario in Florence. Leonardo told her not to tell anyone, as this impresario was mysterious and liked privacy. So, on September 30th, 1940, Virginia arrived to celebrate with her friend. Leonardo handed her a drugged glass of wine to toast with, and that was the last of Virginia. This is what Leonardo had to say about the murder of Virginia. She ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. I gave bars to neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That woman was really sweet. Having once been in the opera, Virginia had acquired many jewels and fine clothes and shoes over the years, so, on top of the 50,000 lira that Leonardo stole from her dead friend, she also got a hold of her public bonds and sold all of her fine clothes and jewels. It was Virginia's sister who rang the alarm bells about Leonardo. She noticed that her sister was missing, and the last place she knew that she had visited was Leonardo's. She went to the police, and they questioned Leonardo, who refused to confess until they set their suspicions on her precious Giuseppe. Then she told them everything, seeming completely impenitent the entire time, even throughout the trial. She even tried to justify that she was a good person at the trial, as reported by a local paper. At her trial in Reggio Emilia last week, poetess Leonardo gripped the witness stand rail with oddly delicate hands and calmly set the prosecutor right on certain details. Her deep-set dark eyes gleamed with a wild inner pride as she concluded, I gave the copper ladle which I used to skim the fat off the kettles to my country, which was so badly in need of metal during the last days of the war. Leonardo was sentenced to 30 years in prison and three years in a criminal asylum. She died October 15, 1970, and if you ever visit the Criminological Museum in Rome, you can see the very pot she boiled her victims in. Now on to Nikolai Zumagaliev, also known as Metal Fang, is our most modern of all the cannibals so far. Nikolai was born on November 15, 1952, in the Soviet Union. During a fight as a boy, his teeth were knocked out and replaced with metal dentures, thus the nickname Metal Fang. After graduating from railway school at the age of 18, he joined the Soviet Army, and after that, he became a sort of wanderer, performing various jobs like being a sailor, an electrician, and a bulldozer. He eventually returned to his hometown of Uzunagash in Kazakhstan and became a firefighter. All of this doesn't seem like it would lead up to where Nikolai went in life eventually. In January of 1979, he performed his first murder. I'll let him tell it in his own words. 
I always loved to hunt, and often went hunting, but this was my first time hunting a woman. When I went out to the Uzun Agak Maibulak track, I saw some young peasant woman. She was alone. I felt my heart pound within me, and I ran after her. Hearing my footsteps, she turned around, but I caught up with her and I put my arm around her neck and dragged her to the side of the landfill. She resisted, but I cut her throat with a knife. Then, I drank her blood. At this point, from the village appeared a factory bus. I lay down on the ground and crouched next to the body. While I was lying there, my hands grew cold. After the bus drove past, I warmed my hands on the woman's body, then stripped her naked. I cut the corpse's breast into strips, removed the ovaries, and separated the pelvis and hips. I then put these pieces into a backpack and carried them home. I melted the fat to fry with, and some parts I pickled. Once, I put the parts through a meat grinder and made dumplings. I saved the meat for myself. I never served it to anyone else. Twice, I grilled parts. The heart and the kidneys. Grilled meat, too. But it was tough, and I had to cook it for a long time in its own fat. The meat of this woman took me a month to eat. The first time I ate human flesh, I had to force myself. But then, I got used to it. The parts of the woman's body that he left behind were discovered on January 25th, but the police couldn't find any leads to a killer. Nikolai proceeded to murder five more women. His streak was only broken because in August of 1979, he drunkenly shot a fellow fireman. He was arrested, diagnosed with schizophrenia, and released less than a year later. When he returned to Uzinagash, he killed three more people. He would usually lure women into dark places, rape them, then dismember and consume parts of them as he did his first victim. It wasn't until his ninth murder that he was caught. My sources conflict on some of the details in this one. Some say that he invited over some friends and their girlfriends and murdered one of the men. Others say he invited a couple plus one girl as his date over and then murdered his date. Either way, he murdered his ninth victim in another room while his guests were still lounging in the living room. They walked in on him, dismembering his victim. He didn't notice them and so they ran to call the police. When the police arrived, Nikolai was nude, covered in blood holding an axe and kneeling next to a dismembered corpse. The police were in such a state of shock when they came upon the scene that Nikolai was able to get away. He fled naked and covered in blood into the night, into the mountains, in December. He was caught the very next day. About a year later, the next December, he stood trial, where his previous schizophrenia diagnosis saved him from prison and he was sent to a special treatment facility for the next eight years. In August of 1989, however, Nikolai managed to escape. While being transferred to a normal mental facility, 
he somehow stole the car he was being transferred in. I really couldn't find many details about how exactly he managed to escape, so I'm sorry about that. I just, I wish I could have put them in, but I really couldn't find anything. So, from there, he retreated to the mountains of Kyrgyzstan and made a living trading medicinal plants, allegedly still murdering women as well. For two years, it was as if he had vanished, but by April of 1991, he tired of being on the run and purposely got himself arrested for a minor theft. At first, he went under an assumed name and claimed to be Chinese. Eventually, authorities figured out his true identity and he was sent to a psychiatric hospital in Kazakhstan. He once filed to be given the death penalty, but was denied due to the conditions of his mental health. In 2014, he was convicted of a 10th murder that they were able to prove he committed while on the run in 1990. In 2016, someone started a rumor that he had escaped once again. You'll even find most of the articles on him say he's still on the run. However, I found out that this was just a rumor started by a 21-year-old girl from his home village, and she was actually arrested for falsifying that claim. So, no, Nikolai isn't somewhere in the world ready to get you. He is still alive and serving time in a psychiatric hospital. When we as a Western society think of cannibalism, I believe there tends to be a lot of xenophobia and racism involved. So I thought I'd end off this episode with a few tidbits here at the end of European or American cannibals, or alleged cannibals. These either weren't long enough to flesh out a whole segment, or they were way too involved and required much more than a quick 10 minutes, so I'll just give you a TLDR. These are also tucked here at the end, remember I said allegedly, because a lot of them happened so long ago that historians disagree on the details of what or if the events ever happened. So take with this what you will. Here we go. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Crusades. If not, let me give you a quick overview. This is straight from Wikipedia because honestly, I couldn't figure out a way to tuck it so nicely into a neat little package like someone at Wikipedia did. The Crusades were a series of religious wars initiated, supported, and sometimes directed by the Latin church in the medieval period. The term refers especially to the Eastern Mediterranean campaigns in the period between 1096 and 1271 that had the objective of recovering the Holy Land from Islamic rule. Basically, European Christians kept attacking the Middle East by insisting that the Holy Land belonged to white people. Please don't at me. I know it's so much more involved than that. That's just so those of you who aren't familiar at all with the Crusades kind of get the gist. Oh, and if you're feeling like being bummed out even more after this episode, go ahead and look up the Children's Crusades. Anyway, back to the cannibalism. At the Siege of Ma'ara in the year 1098, in what is modern-day Syria, Crusaders attacked the city of Ma'arat. The Muslims surrendered, and the Crusaders promised that they would be kept safe if they did so. Instead, these good Christian men began to plunder the city and massacre its people. Realizing the city was not as rich with supplies as they had once thought, the starving crusaders began feeding on the dead bodies of the Muslims. 
Again, as I said before, some historians over at the BBC think that this never happened because there are no Arabic or Muslim texts about it. I just couldn't pass up a chance to shit-talk the Crusaders, to be honest. In another segment of me spreading rumors about jerks I hate from history, do I have a doozy for you about America's seventh president, he who dons our $20 bill, the man with the Indian removal plan, Andrew Jackson. This one shocked me. As horrible as Andrew Jackson was, I actually shared it on Twitter the other day because, woo boy. (laughs) Again, this is very alleged. Let me read to you exactly what was said about him with a few pauses for some gross old-timey words for Native Americans. This is a contribution to the coffin handbills by an eyewitness contributed to the handbill by John Taliaferro, member of Congress from Northern Neck, Virginia in 1828. On the 27th March, 1814, General Jackson had found at an Indian village at the bend of the Tallapoosie about a thousand Indians with their and children just running about among their huts. It has been pretended, fellow citizens, that some of these Indians were in arms, but there is no truth in this. Not an Indian in the whole country has ever shown a hostile disposition or committed a single murder. These poor wretches were massacred in cold blood without the least provocation. The account of this bloody massacre, given by the monster Jackson himself, has already been published by the other eyewitness in the coffin handbill. After this sanguinary chieftain had been guilty of these atrocious acts of barbarity, he laid down composedly and slept upon the field, surrounded by 570 dead human carcasses, a thing unheard of before, all generals in former times having shown their feelings of humanity by retiring immediately on the termination of a battle some 10 or 15 miles from the scene of blood and carnage as fast as legs could carry them. And this is the man, forsooth, who is to be called the peer and like of Washington and Green, who never had a spy hanged or deserter shot in their lives, and would have allowed their whole army to desert and been left without a man in camp before they would have signed the death warrant of a fellow creature. But the day after this bloody affair, the bloodthirsty Jackson began again to show his cannibal propensities by ordering his bowmen to dress a dozen of these Indian bodies for his breakfast, which he devoured without leaving even a fragment. Not content with committing this shocking and unnatural outrage on humanity, he attempted to compel all the officers and soldiers under his command to make a breakfast of the same kind, alleging that it was better than camp beef. But finding that this act of tyranny would produce a general revolt, he was compelled from necessity to abandon the project. That is quite a statement, and this suggests that there were other people who accused him of cannibalism on different occasions. So, was our seventh president, Andrew Jackson, a cannibal? Well, we can't say for sure, I guess. But we can say that he enacted policies that resulted in the slaughter of countless Native Americans and relocated them onto tiny little plots of land and took them off of the land where they had inhabited for thousands of years, just because he felt like it. 
Anyway, I think that's quite enough for this evening, folks. I better retire before I get on an even higher historical soapbox than I've already been standing on for the last 10 minutes. Remember to go follow the show on Spotify. Deadline for the kids episode is September 30th. You can send all submissions to scary to sleep at gmail.com. You can follow the show on Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, and all that good stuff. I know I know and completely understand that a lot of folks are jumping off Facebook. So if you have any suggestions of where you would all like to meet and have a fun community like we do on Facebook, let me know. I am super open to suggestions. Remember to check out my narrations of Witches of the Black Forest on the podcast A Darker Tale. I'll leave the link in the show notes. Next week will be a normal, spooky, fictional episode. We're, you know... I I just do these true ones every few months. I think the last one was July. You know, I just like to break it up every once in a while. Helps my brain. Um, Probably a nice little break for you guys, too. Um, Just something different. Or you hated this. I don't know. I'm feeling weird. It's late. I'm going to go. All right, everyone. (laughs) Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.